Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is part one of a four-part series on great battles in Jewish history, recorded at Caulfield Shul in Melbourne in late 2019. In this lecture, David explains the importance of the geography and topography of the land of Israel in determining the outcome of battles. As part of his explanation, David draws maps for his live audience. For listeners of the podcast who will not see these illustrations, we have provided a series of maps on the episode webpage to help you follow the information being provided. To view the maps, go to davidsolomon.online slash podcasts and click on the link to episode 66. The topic of this series is great battles of Jewish history. We cannot in four weeks cover all of the battles that the Jewish people have fought and have had to fight in their long and amazing history. By far the majority of those battles have happened in the land of Israel. There have been a few battles and we might look at a couple of them that happened outside in the diaspora, in the Gola, in Chutzlaretz. But by far the dominant number of battles and the ones that we're going to look at take place in Israel. Therefore, and I'm going to get straight into it, therefore I always at the beginning of every new series make some preliminary remarks that if we listen carefully and we absorb them are going to hold us in very good stead for the entire series and I don't have to keep coming back and explaining the context of certain things. So. I have a few battles we're going to talk about tonight. I've decided to choose different chronological eras. Many of the battles fought in Jewish history are battles from Tanakh, battles from the Bible. But we are no means ex exclusive. We have battles, famous battles that we're going to look at in this series from the Second Temple period, particularly the Hasmoneans, in advance of Hanukkah coming up, I want to look in detail at those battles, probably in more detail than you need, but really come to terms with what happened there. We had some very, very famous battles against these dudes called the Romans, and that happened in the first and second century, in the first, particularly in the first and third great revolts against the Roman Empire on behalf of the Jewish people. We're going to look at some of those battles at the triumphs and tragedies of those battles in detail and at my folly I'm going to also talk about in this series towards the end we're going to talk about the battles some of the incredible battles in detail of the modern state of Israel but this is talk one and so this allows us to and, and what's amazing about all of those eras I just said they're all happening in the same places. And that's what's incredible about it. But what is really going to revolutionize our understanding of Jewish history through warfare, and I can't overstate this, 
I can't overstate this. Some of you are going to sit here listening and going, oh, he's just making kind of like an insightful remark and that's okay and that's interesting. But I really, really mean this. Understanding the geography and the terrain of the land of Israel will completely revolutionize your understanding of Tanakh on the one hand. I mean, beyond what you can imagine. I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, it might be useful to know where some of these places are. I'm talking about on a deep fundamental level, things can only happen where they happen and when they happen because of the terrain and the geography of the land of Israel. It is that fundamental. But it will also give us tremendous insights into the whole of Jewish history. So what I want to do now is I need to show you what's going on in the land of Israel. And before I do that, as I always do, because I get a little bit nervous, I'm looking around here, I'm seeing some very wise and experienced faces. Who thinks they've got a grip on the geography of the land of Israel? Don't be scared. Who would hit themselves at around a five or a six on geography of the land of Israel? Okay, good, good, good. Uh, ten, ten being, you know, I'm <laughs> professor of geography of the land of Israel at the Hebrew University, and uh, one being, um, I'm not entirely sure I could find Israel on the globe. So you're a five or six, Joe, that's good. Come on, there's some modest people here. Who's, put your hand up if you've been to Israel. <laughs> well, if you've been to Israel, you can already give yourself a two or a three. If you've ever caught the bus or the train from Tel Aviv, from the airport to Jerusalem, you're already at a two or a three, all right? And if you've taken a few tours around, then you have a basic idea, yeah? Who could find Tel Aviv on a map? <laughs> Seriously, who could find Tel Aviv on a map? Oh, that's interesting. Who could not find Tel Aviv on a map? Good, good. That gives me a reason for being here. But Tel Aviv's not the Bible. Who could find Jerusalem? Tiberius? Beersheba? You're all holding it fives or sixes. Yeah? Now, I'm here to tell you this. This is the first lesson in geography that we need to understand. Knowing where the towns and cities are is very, very, very superficial to what we need to understand. Understanding the geography of the land of Israel is understanding, first and foremost, its geological topography. Once you understand the topography of the land of Israel, everything starts to make sense. And you go, oh, now I can see why that place, not just why that event happened, but why that place existed there in the first place is because of its topographical position. We need to go into some of that. I can see already some of you are getting glazed eyes. I promise you, I promise you this will be interesting and will start to make a hell of a lot of sense if you allow me to lay this groundwork, don't worry, don't panic. Lay this groundwork and then we can look at these battles in detail. The first thing, as you know, as we know as battle commanders, because I'm going to talk you through the strategy of these battles and we will discuss it before we see what actually happened. But the first thing you need to know is the terrain. Where are your battles being fought? Now I'm going to do an overview of the land of Israel. And then I'm going to focus and zoom in, because tonight I'm going to deal with just three battles from Tanakh. But the reason I've chosen these three is because they all happen in reasonable proximity in time, and because they all happen in the one area. The land of Israel is so complex, it's not big. It's not big. I don't know if you heard about it, but it's not big. 
It's nowhere, nowhere near as big as Victoria. But it is immensely complex. So to understand this complexity, I want to do an overview just for a few minutes, and then we're going to zoom in on the area that I want to talk about. Everybody follow that so far? So let's do our overview of the land of Israel. Let's see how good we are. Yes? What scale to do this to? Okay, here's my, here's my overview. I always do this thing. If people know, I'm famous for doing that. That's my land of Israel, right? When I'm doing, oh, the world, the Mediterranean, da 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 da, da. That's my land of Israel. Yeah? So I've got a whole palette of colors here, and I'm going to do, oh, blue. So the first thing we know when we look at the land of Israel in a very, very broad thing is we know that there's like a lake over here. Big, what we call a sea, but it's like a, that of course is the Kinneret. That's the Sea of Galilee. That's the Kinneret. And the Kinneret, which is fed from up here, the water comes down from the mountains, the Hermon and so on. It comes down into the the Yama Kinneret. And then it flows out of the Kinneret into the River Jordan until it all collects down here in the Dead Sea. Or as we say it in Hebrew, Yam HaMelach, which is really the Sea of Salt. The whole reason that it is so saline, once again, got a lot to do with the topography of what's going on over here. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. Now, <laughs> so I'm so excited about what I'm doing. I really, really am very, very excited about what I'm doing. Because for me, to be able to go to this level of detail is wonderful, but I have to for these battles. But we're once again, we're still only in a broad overview. So much we know, yeah? We've gone a little bit, we've got some water happening here. And if we were to look at that at Google Earth, that's kind of what Israel would look like if you were looking from, you know, fifth satellite from, you know, 50,000 feet above the Earth or whatever you're going to be looking at, or much more than that, actually. But that's what it looks like. But it doesn't give us an idea of what's happening on the ground. And we know that this entire area is divided into roughly four distinct longitudinal zones. This here, this longitudinal zone here, which I will color in, I'll use green. I'm using green also because green will indicate kind of sea level. So that we can, because the whole important thing about these longitudinal zones is to understand height. Everybody follow what I mean by that? So everybody of us, we still, you're still with me, I know. I haven't told you anything you don't know yet, and I still won't when I tell you that that is the coastal plain. There's Tel Aviv, dude. You can see it if you look closely. That's the coastal plain. Flat, fertile, a bit sandy in some places, but it's flat, it's cool. Then we have, in very broad terms, the center of this whole area is mountainous. Now, when we say mountainous, we're not talking about the Himalayas, yep, yeah? or the Alps, or the Andes, but they're mountains. Basically, we're talking about, say, at their highest points, kind of three to 4,000 feet. But that is considerable when you take into account the fact that the coastal plain is at sea level. 
These are divided into various sections. I'm going to show you that in a section, latitudinally, but I just want to get the longitudinal thing first. There is an area, there is an area, which I'll do in orange, that moves up from the coast towards this central hilly area in topography. This entire area, by the way, from here to here, is around 150 miles, or what do we call that, 220, 230 kilometers. And this area here, as you know, is about 45 miles, about 60, 65 kilometers. There is an area here which comes up from rises, not major hills, major mountains, but kind of increasingly climbing, rolling hills that come up to the mountains here between the coastal plain. And that is called, what do we call that? That's famously, what do we call that in Hebrew, that area? You know when you come on the, in a car in Sherut or a bus or whatever from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and you get to Shar Haggai and you start to go up? You're not yet at the heights, but you start, what do we call that entire area right along here? We call it the... Hare Yehuda is actually, this is Hare Yehuda. The mountains of Judah, the whole area is Hare Yehuda. But this area coming up is called the Shvela. It's the Shvela. It is lower than this area, but still on a rise from the coast. And then, the other longitudinal thing we need to concern ourselves with is here, that's the third one, that's the Jordan Rift Valley, which the great... In fact, it's the great Asia-Euphratic Rift Valley, which is kind of like the longest Rift Valley in the world. It's part of that. It goes all the way down into Africa. It's a real rift. And it's low. It's even the Sea of Galilee is like 700 feet below sea level. And you famously know that the Dead Sea itself is like 1,300 feet below sea level, lowest point on Earth. So you can imagine, if you're going straight from the mountainous country of Judah down to here, then it slopes pretty darn steeply. Around here, for example, on the other side of, this, of the ridge of the Judean Heights is, of course, the wilderness of Judea. We're leading down to the Dead Sea. Why is that a wilderness? Or you've all seen it. Why is that a wilderness? And why is the Dead Sea so salty? Not questions for us now, but we can answer them because we know that this entire area sits in what's called the rain shadow of this area. So all the rain coming here, because it's such a steep decline, this entire area doesn't get any rain. Jerusalem gets as much rain as London. But Jericho gets only three or four inches a year. This is all in the shadow of the Judean hill Everybody follow? And then this fourth area here, which we will be discussing a little bit, which is kind of what we call the Gilad, and all of this area which is now part of Jordan. That's the Transjordan Plateau. Now I want to look very quickly latitudinally before we zoom in on the area I'm going to talk about tonight. Latitudinally. So we have areas going like this. This, of course, we know is the mountains of Judah. And this is Yehuda. It includes the Shvela, it's the tribal allotment of Judah, but the whole area and also the kingdom of Judah that we looked at in different other history courses. But this right now, geographically, is the area of Judah. By the way, where is Jerusalem? 
Put your hand up if you'd be able to show me where Jerusalem is on this map. Yeah, good. That's what I wanted. I wanted you to put your hand up and tell me you could show me. You could show me. One person? No? Come, don't be scared. I'm not going to ask you to do it. Right? Now, for those of you who are not sure, there's a very easy way of finding it. You go from the top of Yamamelach. You just do a straight line left and you'll find in the mountains of Judah, Jerusalem. All right? Once you start to understand that, you're going, for now I can see why King David made that the capital of Israel. Look at it, Manang. Not only, it's in the middle of everything, longitudinally, latitudinally, just north of Jerusalem, there, the hilly area goes down and creates a plateau about a thousand feet below the ridge line of the Judean hills. And that kind of diamond-shaped plateau is Benjamin. The area of Binyamin sits in like a saddle-type plateau in this mountainous region. If, you, we were, if we were to zoom in on the area of Benjamin, which we're not going to do right now, we would see the main towns that make up biblical Binyamin, and some of which are still around, and they would make total sense as to why they are there, which I'll get onto in a second. Then, north of which, north of which, this area here, before we get to here, this area, this rest of this brown area, is kind of divided into two further distinct areas, each of which has a major valley or pass between, beneath them, dividing them. This one here, that is Samaria, the Shomron. And this area here was the tribal allotment of Menasheh, of Manasseh. Sitting here in this pass between these two is the town of Nablus, of Shechem, the biblical town of Shechem, which sits there. Because everything latitudinally and longitudinally, and this is the really important part as I'm about to wipe this off the board. I'm not going to wipe it off the board yet. Wait a second. Hold it. We haven't finished. Because I'm not talking about any of this tonight, but it's really important. I'm going to focus on here. What's here? The Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley. Suddenly these mountains stop and there is a wide plain that exists here before we get to the lower and then the upper Galil. Everything is about how you access the land of Israel. Now, let me actually let me show you on this for one second. This is worth it. Stay with me. I've, ne I've never given this talk before, so you have to just bear with me a little bit so that I can... Um, but I can just make sure we get the bearings. So this mountainous region that we're talking about here, can you see that? The hilly region extends there. What is that? That's the Carmel. The Carmel is not a single height. It's actually a ridge of self-contained mountains in itself, the Carmel Ridge, and that extends to there. Up here is more coastal plain, which biblically is called the plain of Asher. Now, the Jezreel Valley, the Jezreel Valley is actually here. This is the Jezreel Valley. And then, on top of the Jezreel Valley going up, going north, we're going to get more mountains. The lower Galil, the higher Galil. Now, just before I wipe this to zoom in, because I'm going to zoom in on this area, that's why I'm not worried about having drawn it like a 
like a, yeah, like a dog's breakfast. I'm not, before we go there, let's remind ourselves of something. Let's remind ourselves of something. What's going on in the rest of this? What's going on in the rest of this? Let's remind ourselves that the land of Israel sits in the Levant. The Levant is the southern part of what is called the Fertile Crescent, which goes all the way from Mesopotamia through what is today Iraq, Syria, coming down into Lebanon, and all the way down to here. That is the Fertile Crescent. It relies mainly on rain, some rivers, but usually rain. And here, especially if we're going back three and more thousand years, here is a great center of civilization in Mesopotamia with huge empires, one after another, for thousands of years. And here is a great center of civilization called Egypt. Egypt with its own dynasties and empires and wars lasting for thousands of years. If you're taking an army from here to here, or from here to here, or to here, or to here, because the land of Israel sits at the juncture of all these continents, what do you need to do? <laughs> you need to go through Israel. So you're going to come along here. Let's say you're coming from Egypt, and you've got an army. You're not just a couple of dudes and a donkey, you're an army. And you're marching an army. And you go, oh, coastal plain, fantastic. And then, well, I'm going to march my army all the way around here. I've got to get to here. This is the great trans-international ancient highway. How am I going to get to there? Well, Hallowsville, I've got to get through the Jezreel Valley. It's, a, it's not just a massive shortcut, it's flat. But how do I do that? And that's where we need to understand that everything, everything in Israel, not everything, but most things that we need to understand is the importance of the passes, the valleys that pass between the hill country. The most famous pass taken by all international armies that came through Israel from the 35th century BCE to the 20th century was what? How did every land army get through there? The Megiddo Pass. The Megiddo Pass is a low-lying pass that winds through these mountains, doesn't wind, it's pretty straight, and comes out around here at a place called Megiddo. Similarly, if you're coming from Assyria or Babylon or Persia or wherever and you're coming down here and you want to get to Egypt, you want to get further, you want to get to Africa, you want to get to the Red Sea, you want to get anywhere, you've got to come through here. This is the, what they call the Hula Valley. You're going to come through here, past the Galilee, Ginosar and so on, and you're going to come through here. There are other ways of doing it, but nothing is more as effective as going through there. Everybody follow? Good. Now, I'm going to wipe this map. And those of you who are sitting there thinking, gosh, this is crap, right? You try doing that. <laughs> you try standing up in front of a bunch of people at Caulfield Shul and drawing a map of Israel. Now, 
I want to zoom in. I want to zoom in because I'm going to show you now the area that we're going to talk about. We're going to look at three battles. And that's why I have to keep these initial comments tight. But the initial comments I've said tonight just now will be very useful for the coming weeks as well. But I want to look at three battles focused in the Jezreel Valley. Who's been to the Jezreel Valley? Sweet. What is the major town in the Jezreel Valley? Afula. Correct. Afula. You said that like you've lived there. Okay. That's even better. You just know. Very good. All right. But we're not to Afula just yet. Let's look at this. Let's scale this right up so we get an understanding. By the way, what city sits right here? Haifa. That's Haifa. Now, as I pointed out on the other map, the caramel is kind of shaped like a horn and it comes up there and then kind of blends in with the Sumerian highlands as it comes down here. And then the, no, the lower Galilee starts here. It goes like that. And here's the Kinneret. Everybody follow? No, really. Does that make sense? This here is the Jezreel Valley. That's the Jezreel Valley. Now, when you go home and you look at maps and you go, I don't believe what he drew. <laughs> Be kind, but it is pretty approximate. Been looking at these maps for a while and it's approximate, but it's not bad. We'll be looking in detail at this other stuff later, but right now I need to look at the Jezreel Valley. Now, the first thing we notice about the Jezreel Valley is that there are certain exits and entrances into and out of the Jezreel Valley. And the most important of those, and not just the Megiddo, I'm not talking about the Megiddo Pass now, but the obvious one, and this is the plain of Asher here, and this is Lower Galilee. So where's our important pass from the west? It's here, yes? That's why Haifa is where it is. Let's just talk about the Jezreel Valley for a second. It's wide, it's flat, and it's fertile. It's a great, it's the breadbasket of the, basically the whole region. So it's very, very important agriculturally and economically, the Jezreel, but it's like that times 10 on crack when you realize how fundamentally strategic and important it is in terms of international movements, whether you are moving commerce or an army. Controlling the Jezreel Valley is what it's all about. Make no mistake. We all go, yeah, 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 controlling Jerusalem spiritually, that's the most important. But really, in terms of uber-global politics, particularly in the ancient world, the Jezreel Valley you control the Jezreel Valley, you control a lot. Trouble is that maintaining control over the Jezreel Valley under the pressure of competing interests is very, very difficult. This way into the Jezreel Valley is called the Pass of... It's, no, funnily enough, it's not called the Pass of Cup because these passes that come here, especially one that comes out of Megiddo, one that comes out a little further north at Yoknaam, they are called the Passes of the Carmel. This entrance into the Jezreel Valley 
is called, and when I say this, some of you are going to go, ah, oh, yes, of course. It's called the Pass of Kishon. Why? The, Kish the Kishon River flows into the valley. All right? Very important to know. It irrigates it. It allows access into it. Don't think you can really put a ship on there. It's more of a, you know, when we call river, it's not the Mississippi, but it's, in fact, it's even called by some Wadi Kishon because, you know, it's more like Nachal Kishon, but it comes into the river, into the Jezreel Valley. Interestingly for us tonight, occasionally the Kishon floods, certainly in the ancient world. And in fact, we're going to talk about that briefly because this is an amazing night to be giving this. Because what happened on the weekend? This massive hurricane hit the land of Israel. A very, very rare hurricane that far east. A tropical hurricane that far east that hit Israel full on. When in October, a very unusual time for that to be happening. We'll talk about that. All right. Now, there are three very important parts of the Jezreel Valley that we need to orient ourselves with. Don't worry, I'm going to get to the battles. Plenty of people get killed. Don't worry, we're getting there. There are three very important parts to the Jezreel Valley we have to orient ourselves with. The first of those would be, and they're all in the eastern end. By the way, that would be, that would be the town of, um, that's the town of Nazareth just there. That's said it. Yep. Just there on the, kind of like in the middle, on the top of the Jezreel Valley. It's already in the hills of the Lower Galilee. It's not on the flat. Yep. We have three high places on the east. One is... Yeah, just give the talk. Right. <laughs> One is <laughs> Mount Tabor. You've heard of Mount Tabor? Yes. Okay. It kind of looks like a big, round hill. It's quite high and it sits like there in the what we might call the northeastern corner. Then we have this hill area not not physically connected on the surface with with Tabor but a little further south a hill area extending out here which is called the Moreh, Harha Moreh. It's called the Moreh, it's a rise. And then the southern of these three promontories, in other words, higher elevation, they literally stand out from the Jezreel Valley, they're high places, is a mountain called Mount Gilboa. So Gilboa is here. The pass between Moreh and Gilboa, the pass between Moreh and Gilboa, which will take us down to the Jordan Rift Valley to the Kinneret and down to here. That pass is called the Pass of Ein Harod, or the Pass of Harod. This is Harod. Ein Harod is the well of Harod that's there, but Harod is there. And if you follow Harod down, you're going to get to Bet Shan, which is just here. Yep. And then you're basically almost at the Jordan. These are now there are further passes that go up here. But nothing is as convenient as getting through here if you want to hop, skip it over the Jordan. All right? Or to get north or south or wherever you want to 
on that low-lying country. Although, bear in mind that if you're there, you're going to have to climb back up again at some point. I've done enough geography. I want to get into some tachlis, but it's so important to understand what I've talked about here, especially Tabor, Moreh, and Gilboa. The town of Yisrael or Jezreel sits just here. Megiddo, Megiddo is here. That's the Megiddo Pass. And there are other places that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about as we get to them. Now, I don't know if any of you remember, but in the very first talk of the last series we gave on kings, remember in the very first talk, before we talked about the rise of a monarchy in Israel, I talked about some of the political social conditions that had existed around the very late bronze, early Iron Age. This incredible thing called the catastrophe, which was a series of destructions that archaeologists and historians can now see that happened right across the Fertile Crescent area that basically destroyed civilization as they knew it. In the wake of that, certain civilizations began to rise. Everybody was kind of independent now until new networks of trade, of commerce, of alliance, of technology could be built up. Now, during a number of phases of the second millennium BCE, what was the most powerful city-state in this entire area? Sorry? No, Ninvas, Ninvas later. Ninvas much later. Is a town that today is the largest archaeological site in Israel and has been since the 50s, since Yigal Yadin ripped it open and people have been crawling over it. And then in the 90s, they really went to town on it. And even every year, they're making amazing discoveries there. It's a very, very big site because it was a very, very big, important city. And it controlled the entire area. What city am I talking about? No. Yossi? No, Betcham was important, but we're going further north. It was the city, town, city of Chatzor. Now, Chatzor sits in this plateau north of the Kinneret. Now, there are many, many reasons why, when you look at that, you'll understand why Chatzor, in the time where we still could have independent states before they'd been federated into an empire, would be extremely important. Its location is incredibly useful. It has access to there, it has access to here. But we also know that in the late Bronze Age, what do you need to make bronze? Once, I mean, bronze is now a major industry. What, is, what do you need to make bronze? Copper, copper and tin. tin. Now, copper was not difficult to source, but tin is very rare, certainly in the Middle East. Most all the tin had to be imported to make bronze. And Chatzor was a center for the importation of tin. It commerced in tin, it held tin, it distributed tin. That gave it obviously tremendous superiority in economic terms and also in political terms in relation to the whole industry of bronze that was taking place in the Middle East. That didn't take long before Chatzor 
becomes a centre in its own right, with its own army, and starts to flex some muscle. We are talking about a phase now in which Egypt has been somewhat incapacitated, and that's also consistent with what we learned of in Tanakh. And on the other side of Mesopotamia, no one's flexing enough muscle to take the Levant. And Hatzor, up here, is effectively ruling the entire area. However, however, whether you want to listen to historians and archaeologists that tell you that a Semitic people had gained freedom from Egyptian hegemony and broken free and gone into Canaan to set up a some kind of national entity or whether you want to believe those historians and archaeologists who tell you that the nascent people of Israel grew out of existing Canaanite tribes those two views are around and you can probably not have to guess too hard which one your local friendly rabbi would believe in but the Israelites occupied this area and predominantly the highlands they were not cohesive or equipped enough to hold the valleys what that meant because you re to hold the valleys you needed very sophisticated technology you needed sophisticated weaponry you needed this material called iron and a lot of people think that in fact it was the ultimate collapse that caused iron to be invented in these regions because precisely because tin was no longer available but to hold these valley areas you needed much more than what the collective fighting force of Israelites living in these areas could muster the Canaanites also had a new or rather a more developed technology than we could possibly, when I say we, the people of Israel, could possibly dream of, and that was that they had chariots, and they had iron chariots. Now the Canaanite chariot, you have to understand how much I've gone deep into this, right? I have to hold myself back from what we're talking about. I mean, the, the civilizations, the economies, the techno technologies, everything comes into play. And obviously people are writing on this a lot, archeologists, historians, but, and I've made a few insights myself, but what we can gather is that using the technologies of chariots and their advanced weaponry, the Canaanite city of Hathor was able to basically control this entire area. And they did not make life pleasant. Remember that the land of Israel from the perspective of the people of Israel in a conceptual sense, was divided into different tribal allotments. The tribe that was living here in the Hula Valley, that was most affected by being in proximity to the center of the Hatzor civilization, was the tribe of Naphtali. The tribe of Zivulun held, was granted much of the Jezreel Valley. The tribe of Yisachar was in the Lower East Galilee, which is here, which actually should probably be in brown. This is the Lower Eastern Galilee before it drops to the, to the River Jordan. And here you've got Menashe, Asher, Ephraim, Yehuda. The dating is difficult. The dating is difficult. 
even if you with the best intentions of reading Tanakh and even wanting to read Tanakh as pure history, which is not a terrible thing to do because we often find that the Tanakh seems to amazingly coincide with what we find, but even then it's difficult to date the events that I'm going to talk about because the first battle I want to talk to you about, having established this, and it's not going to be like this every week, don't worry, we've done the geography talk now, is the Battle of Tabor. Now, some of you might be familiar with the Battle of Tabor, but you're thinking of a different Battle of Tabor. There was a very famous Battle of Tabor fought 220 years ago by Napoleon, who used very interesting tactics and also used the Kishon Pass to advantage and the various factors of, of Israel. But we're going to talk about the Battle of Tabor that happened sometime between 1150 and 1200 BCE. And that is the liberation of the peoples of Israel from the Canaanite domination of the city-state of Hazor. And have actually led pretty quickly to the demise of Hazor as a civilized center. And that, of course, as you famously know, is connected with a prophetess called Devorah. And Devorah is sitting in Shechem. And from there, she is the spiritual leader of the age. She's a judge. She is a spiritual guide, she's a leader, she's a warrior, she's a prophetess, she's amazing. And it shows, that when we were, talked about Devorah, when we talked about the series on women in Jewish history, that she is an example of how the Jewish people do not have to take any kind of precedent that's meant to exclude women from positions of leadership and power, because that's exactly what she was. And she becomes inspired, and we all know that she became inspired to summon a, a general. I don't know how, you know, by me you're a general, by him he's a general. But a, a guy who could do a shtickle fighting called Barak. And she summoned to Barak to Shechem, and Barak was from the tribe of Naphtali. So he's living up here. In fact, he's living in a place which, once again, we're not entirely sure where it is, but we assume it was somewhere around here called Kedesh Naftali. There are different Kedeshes around. Don't try and look for where Kedesh is. There's a Kedesh here, there's a Kedesh there, there's a Kedesh there, and there's a Kedesh here, but Kedesh Naftali. And he goes all the way from Kedesh Naftali to Shechem, and she says to him, God is going to liberate our people from the Canaanites of Hazor. And Barak goes, well, that's very nice. But uh, if you reckon that's going to happen, then, uh, and you want me to go and do battle against them. Now, bear in mind, Hatzor was the center. The Canaanites had 900 chariots, iron chariots, and the base of their chariots was not in Hatzor. That was the political base, but they dominated the area. Where was the Canaanite base? in a place called Haroshet HaGoyim. And Haroshet HaGoyim is over here. 
on the west of the Jezreel Valley. So basically they were able to control this entire area. The Kinneret, the whole of the Hula Valley, the Kinneret, the Jezreel, everything right up to the coast. That's full domination of this area. In doing so, they split the nascent Israel in two and were able to extract huge economic price. If you control everything from there to there, then you're basically controlling there and you're controlling there as well. You're in charge. So Barak is told by Devorah that he has to fight this army. He's going to draw them out of the war, but don't worry. God's going to make us win. And Barak goes, okay, but I'm only going to do that if you come with me. And Devorah says, okay, I'll go with you. So we're not sure if the tactics that we're about to look at were those of Devorah or Barak. But it would seem that it was a dual inspiration. How do you fight this force? Now, there's one thing I meant to say at the beginning, and I'm going to say it now because it's going to apply to all these battles because these battles are a huge illustration of this point. And that is, what is the most important thing if you're fighting a battle in the land of Israel. What's the most important battle quality that you need? Now, obviously, knowledge of the terrain is going to be hugely important, and that's why I started with that and why I spent so long on it, because we're all battle commanders tonight. So the first thing we have to do is to understand the terrain. Now I'm going to tell you, Tony, what is it? Oh, well, food and water is a, food and water is a universal for all armies. Well, elevations sometimes works for you and sometimes works against you. But surprise can work for you. That's good, but we're not going to see surprise. The sun. The sun's interesting. Yes, you can use the sun. But the quality I'm thinking of that I really want to focus on tonight and that I think that is probably... If you look at everything, all the battles in the land of Israel, though, and right up to today, the one thing you need is... <laughs> Mobility. Mobility is everything. How fast and easily and unencumbered can you move? We're going to see that in all three battles. Barak knew that if he was going to take on 900 chariots, now the Canaanite chariot, which was kind of modeled on the Egyptian chariot, which is different from the Philistine chariot that we'll look at. The Canaanite chariot was modeled on... Now, what's the big deal with the chariot? You have this little platform drawn... Go on. What am I... The relief of Lachish? What am I supposed to do? Now look at this. Okay, fine. Fine. First of all, okay. Okay. I'm not a very good drawer. I'm not a very... It's a six... It's a six-spoked wheel. Right? And it's iron. He had iron chariots, so that would have had an iron rim. Or, and, it, and, and, and it's drawn by horses. Right? Here are the horses. Right? Now... It's usually two horses, right? Horses, 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 right? They're legs, by the way. Now, then you've got this, obviously there's two of these wheels, and 
there's a platform on top. Now the big Kiddush of the late Egyptian dynasties and the Canaanites was to move the axle to the back so that it's a far greater difference in maneuverability and weight and balance of the entire structure. Inside this platform, which was covered with various possibilities, but were two soldiers. One would be riding the horses and the other would be generally, generally, but not exclusively, an archer. So chariots would come by you at speed, they would harass you, they could surround you, harass you. These were very, very well-trained units, firing arrows at you, sometimes spears. Obviously, these men were equipped with their own swords. Yep, they probably had the short thrusting sword and they had chain armor, bronze usually. So they're pretty horrendous thing to have to take on. And they were very, very fast. Barak knew he had 10,000 men because they're the amount, that's the amount that answered the call. All the other tribes were too freaked out to take on Sisera, who was the Canaanite general. Sisera is with his base at Haroshet HaGoyim. And they, he assembles 10,000 men from Zvulun and Naphtali, and he assembles them in Kedesh Naphtali. He goes back home from Shechem and gets 10,000 men to assemble there who are prepared to follow the call of the prophetess Devorah. Barak takes these men and marches them to Mount Tabor and marches them to the top of Mount Tabor. Now, Tabor is steep enough that you really can't get chariots up there. So that was not something that was going to be an immediate issue. They weren't going to have to face the chariots, but 10,000 men on Mount Tabor was a huge provocation. It was a political tactic because he knew that inevitably he was going to have to draw out the army. There's no way that the Canaanite army would be able to suffer the presence of an Israelite army sitting on Mount Tabor overlooking the valley because they could also threaten to cut off these passes. 10,000 men would be enough to cut off the passes. But also, it's a complete... It's a complete uh, huh? affront, a good word. It's a complete affront to, this, to, uh, to the Canaanite control. So he brings all 900 chariots into the Jezreel Valley. I'm going to show these Israelites what happens if they try to defy the Canaanite rule of the Canaanite hegemony. And then, sitting on Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men, they watch. And Sisera brings his 900 chariots around here. Very, very complex. We haven't got time to go into it, into the way that chariots conducted war against opposing armies. But it was very difficult for the chariots to get a fix if they're just in a fixed position. They, well, they like to draw armies out. But Barak didn't come down the mountain just yet. He waited until all of Sisera's forces were inside the valley. And the prophetess then says to him, well, now it's up to God. <laughs> and that's what's amazing, because 
Barak knew, as did Devorah, that occasionally the Kishon floods and turns the whole of the Jezreel Valley into mud. It's part of its irrigation cycle. We see that now. We saw this hurricane come through and it can turn the entire Jezreel Valley into mud. And Sisera's iron chariots all became stuck, at which point they just swooped down the mountain, 10,000 men, and plucked them off, basically one by one, in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. A massive coup. In fact, they couldn't even go anywhere. The only one that managed to escape from the battle was the general himself, Sisera who ran as far, oh by the, I mean that was another brilliant thing which I should have gone into a little bit because they used some very, very clever intelligence. There was an ally of Yavin, the king of Hatzor, living around here, not far from the Kinneret, called Hever the Kenite. And they got Hever the Kenite to switch sides. So they got Hever the Kenite to go and tell Sisera that Barak had taken 10,000 men up to Tabor. Sisera still believed that Hever the Kenite was an ally when he ran from the battle, and that's 30 miles, so he's already ridden a chariot, lost a battle, and then has to run another 10 miles to get to safety, and the nearest safe house he finds, and he's being pursued by Barak and other senior officers of the army of Israel, and he gets as far as here to an ally, and of course, we know what happened. He uh, finds Hever's wife there, Yael, and he thinks he's in a safe place, so he says, I'm just going to lie down because I'm completely buggered, and he lies down, and she gives him some milk, and he thinks, oh, puts a blanket on him, it's all nice. He says, if anyone asks who's in here, he goes, no one, and he thinks, and she, of course, takes a tent peg and drives it through his skull. It's a strange form of hospitality, but that makes her the hero of the whole battle. But that puts an end to the domination of the Canaanites. For the next couple of decades, everything's fairly peaceful. It's a huge battle, the Battle of Tabor, and a battle that is still studied because of its incredible use of geography and climate conditions and knowledge of the terrain and all of the things. It's not just, oh, yeah, he went up to Mount Tabor and then he saw... There's an entire use of the entire geography of the land of Israel in that battle. It worked for Barak, and bear this in mind because we're going to look at a contrasting battle. It worked for Barak to station in one place. Doesn't work for everyone, especially in a country where mobility is so important. But it worked for Barak to reverse, turn the tables on that, and put his army in one place until the exact moment was right. Yep. Now, because of the demise of Hatzor, within a couple of decades, the land of Israel, although the people of Israel had respite, and the Tanakh will tell you that what's about to happen happened because they were naughty boys and girls, and they started getting involved in foreign cults, and you know what it's like as a Jewish community living anywhere. We just can't wait to get involved in foreign cults. And that's what happens in Israel, and they're not doing the right thing, and not doing the right thing also means issues of social justice, no doubt, and things that would make God not happy. So, that very special protection that God gives to the people of Israel and the land of Israel 
was removed as God promised. He says, if you don't behave yourself, I'm going to remove that protection and you'll see what happens. And what happened is an invasion. And that invasion came from a very strange place. It came from a country which we'd encountered before and we knew of its existence but it hadn't bothered us for a while. What nation invaded in the absence of Hatzor? They never would have had the chutzpah to do this when the Canaanites dominated but now that we've got control they think, oh yeah, who would that be? Plishtim. No, the Plishtim are over here. We're not there yet. Not yet. Not yet. It's a good, you're not wrong but not yet. The Syrian, no, not from here. No, 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 the Assyrians are, we're still, uh, we're still about 500 years before the Assyrians. No, no, they came from Midian. Midian is like northern Saudi Arabia. And what is the main mode of warfare of the Midianite civilization? Camel cavalry. Now, a camel is a very interesting animal. You can train camels for warfare. They're pretty intelligent. They're more aggressive than your average horse. Apart from the obvious fact that a camel can walk, you know, long distances in difficult terrain, but they can run very quickly. And they can be trained to work in formations like horses. I think the horse overall is a more reliable animal. Camels have a little bit too much independence of mind. But the Midianites were very, very effective with their camel cavalry. But before they even brought their army there, the Midianites had been sending raiding parties for quite some years into Israel to the point where no one in Israel could use the Jezreel Valley because every time they would go grow crops come the spring, the Midianite raiders would come, destroy and take and rob and pillage everything, and then we had nothing. And they would do this again and again and again. Anytime someone planted a field, they'd come. They dominated this area and no one could take them on. And then, of course, Midian was even threatening to grab a permanent hold on Jezreel. Remember, they don't have the benefit of our hindsight of history. They don't know how things are going to work out. If you're a Midianite warlord living in the 11th century BCE and you're having a lot of success raiding the Jezreel Valley with your camels and no one seems to be stopping you, then how do you know it's going to end badly for you? You might keep going and you might actually establish a whole empire there. They bring the entire army, Midianite army, into the Jezreel Valley because they realise that's really the most important part of the land of Israel. It's fertile, it's got access routes, it's got everything. The people of Israel are so freaked out by the Midianites and they're so scared that not only do they not want to fight them, but most are going into hiding. The Midianites are raiding everything. They're not just taking crops, they're taking animals, they're taking people. It's just horrendous. They're completely bullying and oppressing the entire population. Until one man <laughs> decides to deal with this issue. In the most studied battle in Jewish history. And when I say studied, it's because Israeli generals are still poring over this and a lot has been written about all the military tactics and the strategies and so on of this particular battle. And it involves just about every single thing that you want from a battle. And it's amazing. And of course, I'm talking about the Battle of Moreh. And the Battle of Moreh, remember, here's Tabor. 
Here's Gilboa, and between them is the hill of Moreh. And of course, the figure I'm talking about is... <laughs> Come on, I was expecting the figure I'm talking about, of course. You all know this person, and when I say it, you're going to go... Oh. Gidon. So Gideon is living in a place called Ofra. Now, everybody has a different opinion of where Ofra is. Some people think that Ofra is a fuller in the Jezreel Valley itself. Some people put Ofra more in the heartland of Binyamin. But wherever Ofra is, that's where Gidon was living. And just like Barak was inspired by the prophetess Devorah, Gidon himself was inspired, except this time by a man posing as an angel of God. In fact, he wasn't just posing as an angel of God. He was, in fact, an angel of God. And Gideon thought he was just a man posing as an angel of God and then tested him and he found out that he really was an angel. And he says to him, you need to get rid of the Midianites. So Gideon goes, yeah, how am I going to do that? And the usual kind of thing, God is with you, you're right, you've got the right intent, just go and do it. So he goes to the Jezreel Valley and he summons anybody who's going to go and fight this battle and get rid of these damn Midianites. Now once again, not everybody wanted to go, but enough people went that he managed to get an army of 32,000 men. That's not a bad effort, but it was nowhere as big as the Midianite army that suddenly marched into the Jezreel Valley from the southeast and occupied a place called Shunem, which is just north of the Moreh. In fact, we're told that there were so many camels and men, it was like an endless sea of camels and men right across the Jezreel Valley. Gidon has his army of 32,000 men, and he camps them on the other side of the Moreh, kind of slightly out of sight, on the north side of Gilboa, on the northwest side of Gilboa, near the entrance to the Valley of Harod, a place called Ein Harod, the wellsprings of Harod. And he gathers them there. And what does he do with his 32,000 men? Now he knows that 32,000 men without any camels, no horses, no chariots, these ones didn't have that stuff. Most of them didn't even have metal weapons, clubs, sticks, that kind of thing. That's what we had. We did not have access to the major weapons of technology. So what do you do? You've got your 32,000 men. You can't fight these camels on open plain. What are you going to do? You have to use your noggin. The first thing that Gideon, Gideon does, this is amazing. This is like, you know, who would think to do this? He looks at his army and he goes, too many. Too many. And he sends 22,000 of them home. And he's left with 10,000. And he looks at the 10,000 and he goes, too many. And he selects, how he selects and what he does, that's a whole other story. But he selects, out of the 10,000, 300 men. And he sends the rest home. Now, what is amazing about that, before we go into that, is that the first thing he realized is that I am not going to be able to defeat the Midianites on numbers. The only way I'm going to do this is through the use of intelligence and mobility. Over the course 
of the history of warfare, they have discovered that 300 men is the ideal, is the maximum and kind of ideal fighting force, the limit of what can be directed by and unified by one military leader. We've seen the number 300 elsewhere in history. The 300 men of Sparta at the Battle of Thermopylae. There were other cases of 300 as well. You'll find the number 300 occurring again and again in military history. 300 men is an ideal force. So that's amazing in itself. He chose 300 men and he divided them into three units of 100 men each. Why did the night before the battle, and here's another really brilliant, bear in mind, the Battle of Moray is the first ever recorded battle that took place at night. There's no battle we have, of which we have the record in history, that took place at night before this. So that's a whole innovation. But the night before the night of the battle, he went with one other individual, his armor bearer, and they snuck down to the outskirts of the Midianite camp to gather intelligence, to find out when the watchers were being chained, changed, and what else did they go to find out? The morale. Now what's interesting is, is the day before Gideon had sent his own brothers with a force to encounter a Midianite force near Tabor at a place called Endor. Now that, that unit that Gideon was basically, they didn't necessarily know it, but it was a suicide mission. They got wiped out. But the Midianites knew that there were Israelite forces around, so they were nervous. Remember, this is not an occupying army, this is an invading army. So they're in this big flat open plain, they're unfamiliar with, there's mountains all around, they're not entirely sure who's where and who's what, they're nervous, they're unsure, they've got set up watches, they've got fires in their camp, but they've set up watches the night before. No one would ever assume that anyone's going to fight a battle at night. So watches. Gideon goes and he personally checks on what time the watches change and assesses the morale of the soldiers. And he comes away convinced that the Midianites are on spilkers. They are nervous. They're confident, but they're anxious. He hears one guy telling another guy a dream that he had about some big loaf of bread falling, falling into the camp and setting the whole place on fire. And he goes, that's a sign. They're nervous. The following night, he takes his three units of 100 men each and he surrounds, virtually weaponless, and he surrounds the entire Midianite camp on three sides. As they approach the camp and they come down on the camp from the slight rise and as they approach the camp they all in unison every single one of these 300 guys has been given a clay jug a torch and the torch is inside the jug so the torch is hidden on the approach and a shofar and on the signal from Gideon, they all smash the jugs, 
wave the torches around, blow the shofar, and start screaming as they run into the camp. On three sides, and the Midianites are completely freaked out. Can you imagine the cacophony and the noise that would be happening around you? It's night. You don't know which direction it's coming from. It looks like a lot of people, 300 waving, flaming torches on all sides, or at least the one part you look at has just got at least 100, and you can see out the corner of your eye there's other things going on. Clashing of pottery, blowing of shofars, and the Midianites are thrown into complete confusion. Like 100,000 men are thrown into complete confusion. Start killing each other, because it's also night. You can't even see properly. You don't know what's going on. And eventually, the remnant of the Midianite army flees in the only direction available to them, which, of course, as deliberately designed by Gideon, is into the valley of Harod. And then... They are trying as fast as they can to get back to Midian to cross the Jordan. Then, then Gideon has the remainder of the Israelite army, over 20,000 men, swoop down from the mountains of Manasseh and just wipe them out en route. Phenomenal battle done with incredible tactics. And as I said, Israeli generals are still looking at this going, almost every single facet of what Gideon did is exactly how you would fight a battle in that area using intelligence, a small, highly mobile, highly motivated force to uh, torches to effect a great victory. So that's the second battle. And I've got seven minutes for the last one, but really we can't. Uh... Sorry. Let me clarify that. Not exactly 20,000. He sent 22,000 guys home. He still had a force of 10,000 he hold, said to hold back, but it was added to. Because once that happened, then the men of Manasseh get boldened and all these other people start joining the fight as well as, they, as the Israelites are spilling out of the slopes. I mean, in fact, Gideon pursued a large contingent of the Israelite army across the Jordan, where he famously asked for help from some Israelite towns near the Jordan, Sukkot and Penuel, that he did not get and which he very angrily busted up on his way back. But he chased the Midianites all the way over. But he, there, there were several tens of thousands of Israelites that poured out of the mountains as a result of that. Now, it's a good question. At first, the people that went home were home, home because they were a little bit scared. But by now, they were, you know, nothing, nothing more tasty than chasing a fleeing Midianite. Now, this third battle, which I have five minutes to talk about, I'm going to do in five minutes, but you have to realize that this is an entire subject in itself. And this battle happens a little bit later, not that much later, a little bit later, in the same area. And that is a battle that went the exact opposite way, unfortunately. And that is, as you would know, after the period of the judges, with Devorah and Gideon and Shimshon and Samson and so on, we is getting ourselves a king. And that king is Saul, and he unifies all the tribes. But Saul has a very, very difficult enemy. Saul wins battles in the east, and he wins battles in the north and south. That's okay. But there's, in the whole of the preceding century and a half, there a new wave of migration, the big migration of the Aegean and Canaan Phoenician peoples has happened. And they have settled in this area here, 
and they are called Philistia. And they set up the Pentapolis, and I've talked about that before, the five city-states of the Philistines, and they're, a, they're in the coastal plain, and they're a serious force to be reckoned with. Exactly, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gat, Ekron, and Gaza. Now, for most of Saul's reign, in all the history, we can't go into that now, we went into a little bit with the kings, but that's a whole story about the different battles that they were having. I had to choose one of these battles, and I wanted to choose a battle in the valley of Yisra, the Jezreel Valley, because it's very, very important. All these battles kind of decisive. For most of Saul's reign, and you're going to forgive me, I'm going to go a couple of minutes over, but it's worth it. For most of Saul's reign, the Philistine, and remember the word Paleshet, from which we get Philistine, comes from the verb, the Hebrew verb palash, meaning to invade. Either that or the verb is like that because we got it from the peoples. But they were constantly trying to invade these highlands. And for most of Saul's reign, they attempted these through the Shvelah. Actually, I mean, on this, it's lower, right? Through, this is, this is to Menashe Ephraim, but through the Shvelah and the various passes. We know, for example, that the Battle of Aphek, the famous battle with the Philistines even before Saul in the early days of Samuel, was fought there where we lost the ark. We know that David and Goliath was fought in the valley of Elah, in the Elah Valley, which is also one of the Shvelah passes into the hills. And the famous battle of Michmash, which was a bit of a turning point, was a battle that was won in a way tactically by Jonathan, although Saul came up from behind with the army to finish it off. And that was in Michmash in the territory of Benjamin, so all of the Philistines constantly throughout Saul's reign had been trying to attack and invade the center of the country. But they then decided that what they would really do is actually, why are we doing that? I mean, who needs those highlands? We're a growing peoples, we're looking for fertile lands. What we really want is the Jezreel Valley, because the Jezreel Valley will give us that economic superiority, it'll give us our agricultural breadbasket, and it will give us control of everything. It will also split Saul's kingdom. Saul's kingdom is already teetering, and we know that, because Saul's spending most of his time using the army of Israel to chase one of his own citizens, his own son-in-law, in fact, all around the country, David by this time was living with the Philistines as the only way of protecting himself from Saul. Now the Philistines did something clever. They came round and they captured the city of Bethshan. So they thought, if we can take the Jezreel Valley, then we completely cut Israel in two and we control the Jezreel Valley because we control Bethshan. So an enormous Philistine army marches northward to meet at Aphek from where they are going to go through the Megiddo Pass into the Jezreel Valley. Now you're Saul. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And an amazing, one of the best analyses I've read of this is actually in the, in the famous book by uh, Chaim Herzog and Mordechai Gichon, who analyzed this very, very, a lot of very clever military historians have analyzed this. It's really quite interesting. Why did Saul take the entire army of Israel 
and camp them at Mount Gilboa. Why did he do that? Would it not have been much more sensible, given that the Israelites were kind of outnumbered, it was a massive Philistine force that actually broke up into three different parts, why did he not do a Thermopylae and head off and try and stop this army from getting through that pass? There you're using the geography of the country and you're able to I mean, you might lose, but, you know, it's so much more difficult to get through here. And then you would have forced the Philistine army to other ways of access that you might have had more success against. Why sit at Gilboa and wait for them to come? And the Philistines had chariots. The Philistine chariot was like an improved version of the Canaanite chariot. And the Philistine chariot, as famously noted, didn't, uh, with the main difference between that and the Canaanite Egyptian chariot, was the Philistine chariot had three men inside it. One was riding, but it had an archer, and it had a guy with shields and swords as well, and spears. And it had a whole container in the chariot for spears. And very, very fast and very well trained. Hundreds and hundreds of these chariots. Why would you, and infantrymen, and heavy infantry, light infantry, why would you just sit and wait? So they analyze it, and this answer is brilliant. Is because if you read Tanakh carefully, you will see that when everybody assembled at Aphek, yeah, including David and his own private militia, who had no choice but as a loyal vassal of Achish, the king of Gath, he had to go. And when he got there, fortunately for David, the other Philistine general said, are you kidding? That Judean guy is going to fight with us? You can't trust him. And they sent him back. And Achish goes, look, I'm really sorry, David, but you're going to have to leave. And David goes, oh, no, I was so looking forward to this battle against, you know, my own father-in-law. And uh, David, of course, is very relieved, and he takes his own army and goes back down south to Ziklag, where he's stationed. Saul's scouts would have seen that from their vantage points in the Shvelah, they would not have known that was David's entire contingent heading south. That would have looked to them a lot like an entire Philistine column leaving Aphek and coming down here in order to come up the Shvelah, to come to the Israel Valley through what's known as the Watershed Road or the Road of the Patriarchs up here where you come from Hebron up to Bethlehem, up to Yerushalayim and all the way up there, past Shiloh and all the rest of it into the Jezreel Valley. How would you stop that if you were based in the pass? And there are many other ways in as well. So if you're stationed in Gilboa, you've got vantage sight over the whole thing. And more importantly, you are prepared for any counter surprise moves of the Philistine army coming from here and there. But as we have said, mobility is everything. Where has that worked for Barak on Tabor? It was disastrous for Saul on Gilboa because Gilboa is not Tavor. When the Philistine army came in, one of the things that the Philistines had decided was, yes, they had an overall strategic aim of taking the Jezreel Valley and linking up with Bet Shaan, <laughs> but their immediate tactic was to kill the king and his sons because they knew that it would demoralize the entire army. 
on the eve of the battle, like Gideon tried to get intelligence on the Midianites on the eve of the battle, on the night before the battle, Saul, the night before the battle, wants to get intelligence. But who does he go and ask? <laughs> he, he goes and asks a sorceress living at Endor about what's going to happen. And he goes, I want you to bring up the prophet Samuel from the dead and ask him what's going to happen in this battle. Give me my intelligence. And she goes, I don't want to do that. He goes, no, you're going to do it. So she does it. And Samuel gets summoned up. His ghost gets summoned up from, he's really not happy having his rest disturbed like that. He goes, what do you want? Saul goes, I want you to tell me how this is going to work out for me tomorrow. And Samuel says the famous words, by this time tomorrow, Saul, you and your sons will be with me. Saul returns to his encampment on Gilboa broken. His morale is crushed. It's the exact opposite of Gideon. And in fact, the Philistine chariots managed to draw the Israelite army into the valley as they do. They just a few at a time to let you think that, you know, you can come a little bit and whatever. And then eventually they come en masse. Behind the chariots were infantry, but the last to arrive really are the archers. And the chariots were able to pursue the Israelite army back up Gilboa and trap Saul from three sides on Gilboa. As the chariots are getting closer and Saul and his sons who are fighting hand to hand, the sons are fighting hand to hand to protect their father, Jonathan and his brothers, as they're ascending back up Gilboa, eventually the chariots can't go and the archers take over and just start sending wave of volleys of arrows and eventually Saul is injured and he realizes that the battle is lost. And he asks his armor bearer to kill him so that the Philistines don't play sport with him. And his armor bearer refuses to do that. So Saul famously, as the proverbial statement goes, literally falls on his own sword. The Philistines do come to Gilboa. They find Saul's body and Jonathan's and they desecrate them and strip them and they take them, the bodies, to Bet Sha'an where they hung them up outside, on a mound outside the city for everybody to see. It was the very brave act of the men of Yavish Gilead, who'd had a whole history with Saul, who marched through the night. A very small group of very tough commandos marched all night, took the bodies down off the walls, brought them back to Yavish Gilead and gave them a proper burial. That entire episode of Gilboa and of course we know what happened after that after that David becomes king and over the course of the next few years and he might have actually even been king in the very very first instance as a kind under a kind of Philistine protectorate he wasn't completely independent but over time after seven years of ruling Judah from Hebron he was able to take Jerusalem and move in and become the king of a unified monarchy and that was not good news for the Philistines because then he seriously schmeiced them. David ends the whole Philistine project basically and that's a whole other career but in terms of the Jezreel Valley it's fascinating to see how Saul's particular choice of tactic lost because it cost him mobility 
whereas Barak's enabled his mobility. And of course, Gideon in the middle in the Battle of Moray showed how mobility and intelligence really works to tremendous advantage. These are decisive battles. Now, just before I finish, I've gone five minutes over, but just before, obviously, when I said that Saul perhaps should have cut off, he didn't know because they, they all came through this pass. Who did that? Who tried to do that? Cut off a massive army at the Megiddo Pass famously. We discussed it in the Kings. Was Josiah. That's exactly where Yoshiahu stood against the armies of Pharaoh and Nechor. That battle, which also happened in Megiddo in the Jezreel Valley, didn't work out well for Josiah because he basically got killed in the first five minutes of the battle. And the Egyptians went, well, we've killed your king. What are you going to do now? And they just marched through on their way to help their friends, the Assyrians. But there's one more battle, and I'm ending on this point, in the Jezreel Valley, which is the battle to be fought in the future. Because the word Armageddon comes from Megiddo, because that is where the great, the Har of Megiddo is where the great battle of the future between the forces of good and evil will be fought as the nations of the world come and once again try to take back the Jezreel Valley and the people of Israel and the forces of right, whoever that might be for you, will stand against them and be victorious at the Armageddon. And we can only imagine what's going to happen in a battle in Armageddon in the nuclear age, but that's the crucial importance of the Jezreel Valley. So thank you for your patience tonight. I've had to lay down a lot of geographical stuff and talk about battle so that we can really come to terms with it. Once again, on any subject, we've just treaded lightly. We've gone into some depth, but it's still a lot more for you to uncover if you want to research any of these topics. As always, there's a lot of things I didn't talk about tonight, but uh, I hope that that was of some broad overview and use. Next week will be very, very exciting because we'll get right into some very juicy battles. All right? Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.